A very good morning to you all on this Sunday the 9th of July and uh, it's great to see actually I, I did fear that uh, oh dear how many people are going to be on holiday how many are away how many might be visiting with us but uh, it's great that you're all here this morning and it's uh, uh, it's good to worship the Lord together together as the family of God uh, that we can sing praise to the Lord that we can pray together that we can hear the word of God read and the word of God preached and then later in the service we'll also be sharing bread and wine around the table of communion. Our reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the first 20 verses in the chapter. So please turn with me either in your diary or via your app, tablet, or traditional Bible, and uh, let's read together uh, these verses from Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, that's Jesus, come out of the man you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the many demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Amen. Thanks be to God for this reading. Our preacher this morning is Duncan, um, our pastor, and uh, as Duncan comes up to preach just now, let's, uh, let's take a moment in prayer and just to... Uh, um, ask for God to be with Duncan as he preaches and that we wouldn't hear the, the words of a man um, 
reciting a sermon or speaking on what he has uh, uh, looked at and researched over the, the, the number of days prior to this, but actually that, that God would speak powerfully through him and that we would hear the words of God preached this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we just ask that you be with us, uh, be with us all as we um, uh, listen this morning. Give us attentive ears to listen and open hearts, Lord. Be with Duncan as he preaches. Enable them by the power of your Holy Spirit that, that we don't simply hear a man preaching, no matter how eloquent or well-prepared, but that we hear you preaching, that we hear the word of God preached into our very hearts and souls. We ask that you be with him and with us as we hear the word of God preached this morning. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Well, good morning, and let me add to Nigel's welcome and what a privilege it is for us to have the Word of God, to open it, to proclaim it freely, to own it, to study it, and I pray that you'll be blessed as we hear God's words and reflect on them this morning. Um, Knocking down old things to build new things is often how we deal with the problem of worn-out buildings. And usually it's the way that we solve the problem of worn-out buildings because it is the cheapest way to solve the problem of worn-out buildings. Knock down the old to build the new. But sometimes someone sets about on a restoration project, and I would put it to you that the result is far more satisfying to see something that at one time was built with care, built for a purpose, for it to fall into ruin and disrepair, but then to see someone raise it up again from the ashes, its majesty, its purpose restored. It's a beautiful thing. The ongoing work to restore Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris will take, so they tell me, till the end of next year and it's cost a fortune, but almost everyone is willing for it to be completed because there is something powerful about seeing something magnificent restored. And we admire people, we should admire people who have the skills to make that happen, people who have the expertise to restore a painting or a building or even a piece of furniture. Because in their hands, it's as if something has been brought back to life. Well, over these next two Sundays, we're going to be walking with Jesus as he travels in Mark chapter 5. We're taking a break from Exodus, um, slightly more disjointed Sundays in the summer. We're going to spend these next two Sundays in Mark 5. And Mark's gospel, in some ways, has a very straightforward structure to it. The first eight chapters or so are Mark showing us who Jesus is, showing us the kind of authority that Jesus has. And you would see if you read through it, Jesus has authority to heal diseases, authorities to cast out evil spirits, to forgive sins, to teach, authority over the wind and the waves even. And Mark wants us to be clear on just who Jesus is, what is his identity. And from there, the second half of the book is then revealing to us Jesus' mission, which will lead all the way to the cross and to the empty tomb. 
Well, in Mark 5, we're in the first half of the book. And so we must be asking of the text, what does this tell me about who Jesus is? And this episode that Nigel read for us, it's, it's dramatic, isn't it? It's scary, and it's a little bit confusing. But I believe that its beauty is seen in the power that Jesus has to restore. Something precious has fallen into ruin and disrepair, and Jesus, and in fact only Jesus, has the power to bring it back to life. We're being introduced to Jesus, the great restorer. And straight away in the chapter, we're introduced to the geography of what's taking place. And we're told that Jesus, um, in the previous chapter, He set off to travel with His disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee from west to east. And that might not sound terribly interesting to us, but it is significant because that trip to the east side of the Sea of Galilee was stepping outside the promised land. This is territory which wasn't necessarily occupied by Jews. And the big clue is that there were 2,000 pigs being kept on the hillside. Pigs were unclean animals for Jews. So, what a significant step for Jesus, the Jew, to deliberately step outside of Jewish territory. It seems as if He really has come, not just to be a Savior for the Jews, but beyond. And so, He, he travels into the country of the Gerasenes. And as soon as He steps out of the boat, you see that in verse 2, Mark tells us, immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately there met Him this ghastly sight a man, well, what's left of him? A man who lives among the tombs, these caves that were on the side of the shore, and he's out of control. The last resort for the locals had been to try and tie him up, even with chains. But none of their efforts could constrain him. There is something inside of him that is destroying him. He does not sleep but day and night he cries out. He cuts himself with sharp pieces of stone. And at the end of the story, when the man's restored, we're told that he's clothed. So, what does that tell us? He's naked. And the cause of all of this, verse 2, he has an unclean spirit. And in fact, as we read the dialogue between him and Jesus, we find that it's not an unclean spirit but many. Did you see that in verse 10? Um, a big part of verse 9. He's asked, what is your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. And we know that there is enough demons here to take possession of 2,000 pigs. It's a desperate situation. This is a man who has become utterly dominated by the powers of evil. And what have they done to him? He has been utterly dehumanized. This man has been turned into something else. It's a powerful picture of what the forces of evil do. 
it shows us that demons delight to dehumanize. Demons delight to dehumanize. We often find these parts of the Gospels difficult to make sense of. Um, And I don't think we get to just write this off as, well, this is simply how they understood mental illness back then. I don't think we get to do that. And I say that because it's clear from the text, isn't it, that this man's troubling behavior is caused by some external personal force becoming internal to him. I mean, Jesus has a conversation with these forces that have possessed this man, and He expels them from Him. And, you know, the Bible teaches that there, there really is such a thing as evil, and there really is an adversary to God, the devil, and that He has a well-organized army of unclean spirits or demons or fallen angels, whatever term you prefer whom he deploys to oppose the work of God. Now, that's not typically how we think today, is it? But that's a mistake. These things are real. And we don't have to look around for very long to see that the Bible's description really does make sense of what we see all around us. There is evil in our world, and it is more than just a byproduct of human choices. It is a progressing and advancing evil that seeks to dominate. And it seems that demon possession had a particular intensity around the time of Christ's coming. And I suppose that makes sense. Here God is sending into the world the Savior of the world, and so the devil mobilizes all his forces around this Messiah who has come. And for this man in Mark 5, there is almost nothing of his humanity left. It is common for people today to claim they've been dehumanized, dehumanized, I beg your pardon, I knew I would get there. They've been dehumanized. I just scanned some news items this week, and that word has been used regarding sending refugees to Rwanda, not providing disabled access to buildings, abusing people on social media, not allowing someone onto a flight because of their size. To dehumanize is to treat someone as less than human. But before we can understand what it means to dehumanize someone, well, we first need to understand what it means to be human, don't we? And the place we go to find that is not within ourselves, but to God. He reveals to us what it truly means to be human. The opening book of the Bible tells us that God created everything and that the pinnacle of His creation was human beings. And what set humanity apart was they were created in the image of God. And there's several aspects to that, made with a capacity to know God, but made to be an image of God. In other words, to reflect in this world who God is. That's what we're here for. And we do that by worshiping God, by living 
dependent upon God, obedient to God, living a life that is in keeping with who God is. And so it's not surprising from what we see in Mark 5 that almost as soon as these first human beings were created, the devil attacks them. The devil seeks to dehumanize them. And how did he do that? By tempting them not to trust God, to disobey Him, to rebel against Him, to be their own gods. And there's a sense that when they succumbed to that temptation, the human race was dehumanized, turned away from the Creator instead of leaning on Him. And this is always the devil's work because demons delight to dehumanize. Now, this is hard for us to hear, I'm sure. But naturally speaking, each one of us is to some degree dehumanized. When the Apostle Paul was reminding Christians of what they were before they became Christians, he said, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's another title for the devil. He said, before you were Christians, well, we were just following the devil. The Apostle John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the devil. Again, Paul says, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And what does the devil delight to do? To dehumanize, to turn people away from God. And we see this not necessarily in demon possession in the same way we see in Mark 5, but in how the evil one leads us away from what we were made to be. How does our society think about what it means to be truly human, to be truly free? It's not this biblical definition, is it? To be truly free, to be truly human, is to be able to listen to yourself, to understand your inner desires, and to give full expression to those desires, whatever they may be. That's what it means to be human in our society. We live in a society that has elevated self to the place of God. And therefore, everything that comes from self must be good and right and true. But friends, this is not what we were made to be. This is not true freedom. This is not what it means to be truly human. It is merely another expression of what it means to be dehumanized. It is denying what God has created us to be. And it's the belief that our physical appetites are the highest definition of what we are. And this is how we have today landed in the confused mess that we're in as a society when it comes to sex or sexuality or gender. It's how marriage rates and marriage survival rates fall through the floor. It's how abortion numbers continue to rise and rise year on year. It's how we lose community and replace it with me seeking what I want, because I must be free to be what I feel. 
And when we reject the biblical message that we are creatures made in the image of God, made to honor God, who are most free when we depend upon God, then we will always instead worship ourselves and our desires. Demons delight to dehumanize, and the sad truth is that we as humans willingly follow them as they lead us away from trusting God. But Mark's purpose in recounting this story is not so that we might marvel at the power of demons, but so that we might more clearly see Jesus. And while demons delight to dehumanize, Jesus judges the demons. Jesus judges the demons. The demon-possessed man and the community that he lives near are all in subjection to the greater power of this legion of demons. There's nothing they can do to stop it. But it's not like that with Jesus. You see here the demons answer to Jesus. They know their place relative to him. You see that in verse 7. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This is what this legion of demons said in response to Jesus calling the spirits to come out of the man. They know that they cannot prevail against Jesus. They know Christ's command will prevail over them. And so, what can they do but plead for some kind of mercy? Uh, do they not want to be thrown out of that territory? Is that what's so important to them? Do they not want to be without something to possess? Whatever it is, they appeal to Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs, and it is as if they feared that the alternative would be that Jesus would destroy them. And so they say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, don't torment us. Don't send us to the place of destruction. Instead, send us into these pigs. But there's more than that here, isn't there? It's not just Jesus being more powerful than the demons. We're given a glimpse of what Jesus does with the demons, because the herd of pigs is no safe place for them. Instead, verse 13, the herd of pigs, they rush down the steep bank into the sea, and they're drowned in the sea. Now, you might ask, could a demon drown? And I think the question is probably, I doubt it. But the picture here is that Jesus destroys the demons. That is the picture on display here. Jesus destroys the demons. He judges the demons. Because it would only at best be a temporary comfort, wouldn't it, if Jesus could only boss the demons around? Because what's to say that these demons might not come back and one day just reassert their power over someone? Now, here is a picture of how Jesus deals decisively even with the fiercest and most terrifying of foes. It isn't the first time that Jesus has done this in Mark's gospel. He has cast out unclean spirits already. And in Mark chapter 1, the people marveled, he commands even the unclean spirits. But what we see here in Mark 5 is that it's more than that. Jesus' power is about more than just commanding them he judges them. He destroys them. The Apostle John could say this of Jesus' mission. 
He says in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that same John was given a vision of the day when the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented day and night forever and ever. You'd find that in Revelation 20. This is ultimately where the evil one and his hordes are heading. How can we be sure? Well, because in the Gospels, there's an even more decisive scene than this one. It's actually the high point of Mark's gospel, a surprising scene of victory because it sees Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, nailed to a cross and killed. It's not what we typically imagine someone's victory to look like, but it is for Jesus. You see, the devil only has any kind of claim on us because of our sin. We are fallen from God. We are prey for the devil. But on the cross, Jesus accomplished something. For all who trust in Him, their sin became His. All the demands that God's justice rightly makes on us for breaking His law falls on Him. Christians find their freedom at the cross where their sins were forever taken away by Jesus. And so at the cross, any claims that the devil might make upon us is destroyed. Paul would speak about the great irony of the cross, that the enemies of Christ thought they had destroyed him by crucifying him. But in fact, the cross was the means where the spiritual forces opposed to Jesus were put to an open shame, shown to everyone to have been defeated. And if the Christian ever needs to be reminded of how the bondage that the devil puts us into is broken, then it is there at the cross we must go. Because nothing not even angels and rulers, fallen angels or evil spirits can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so we see that Jesus, the judge of demons, is indeed the great restorer because the stranglehold of legion is broken and the man is free. In verse 15, we're told that the people from the town, from the country, they come and they see the man. And what is it they see? He is sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. This is a transformed picture in every way imaginable. The man is at rest. It's no small thing to say that this guy was sitting there. Nobody had seen this man sit. He roamed around the tombs. He never slept. He was never at rest. And here he is seated. The man's shame has been taken away. He's no longer naked, but he's clothed. The man is able to think and to see clearly. We're told he's in his right mind. J. 
Jesus has restored this man. The power of legion is no more. The man is dehumanized no longer. Now he's restored to dignity through the work of Jesus. And this is but a shadow of the great restoration work that Jesus has come to do. Humanity in the grip of the devil, fallen from God, covered in shame, unable to know God, unable to even know ourselves, this great work of art that God completed, which has fallen into such ruin and disrepair, Jesus comes, the great restorer, and by giving himself, he breaks the grip of the devil. He bears our shame away. He carries our sins away. He clothes us with His perfect garments of righteousness and brings us into a relationship with Him. Humanity's purpose restored. But it comes to each of us personally These verses in Mark 5, they come to us to open our eyes, to to see that we have been led away from God by wicked forces, but to be given the good news that Jesus is greater than all of them, that those chains that bind us are broken if we come to Jesus, turning away from sin, turning to Him, trusting that He and He alone has the power to deliver us from our dehumanized existence and to trust the one who judges the demons to deliver our soul. You cannot read through the Gospels, these accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, without without it being obvious that He was often a controversial figure. And I suppose there are times when you read some of the things that perhaps Jesus said And you would say, well, I can see why people would be rubbed up the wrong way by him saying that. But I wonder if we think it's so obvious here in Mark 5. Because you come to the end of this account, and the room is divided, isn't it? You might think, well, this demon-possessed man who's been terrifying this community for we don't know how long, He's been transformed in an instant. Surely that's a cause for coming to Jesus and celebrating what He's done. You know, we we don't need to lock our doors at night anymore. Look what He's done. But what we see here is that people find Jesus repulsive or compelling. Jesus, people find Jesus, the same Jesus, either repulsive or compelling. So, in verse 15, when the people from the nearby city, from the fields, the country, they come to see what's happened, uh, Mark deliberately tells us, verse 15, they came to Jesus. This is why they've come. It doesn't say they came to see the 2,000 dead bodies of pigs in the, in, the, in the sea. It doesn't say they came to see that. They came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man And 
They were afraid. They knew they were in the presence of something that should terrify them. I mean, they were afraid before. The man was possessed by thousands of demons. They were terrified of him. And now they are gone, there's a different kind of fear descends. They are in the presence of the power of God. So, a bit more explanation is given to them in verse 16. And verse 17, this is, ah, to me, as you were reading this for the first time, it is such a twist in the tale, isn't it? Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart. They began to beg Him to leave. They find Jesus repulsive. They want Him to be as far away from them as He can be. Now, I think it's more than because of the economic loss of losing 2,000 pigs, which I'm sure is no small thing. Was it a consciousness of their own sinfulness in His presence? Whatever it was, they decided Jesus is too hot for them to handle. They don't even want Him in their land. They knew His power. The events were undeniable, and yet they wanted nothing to do with Him. And it was the biggest blunder they could ever make in their lives. You can replace pigs. You can even numb the emptiness of the dehumanized life. But by rejecting Jesus, you reject the only hope that there is for humanity. And I want to urge you today, before you send him away again, Look again. Look again at Jesus, the great restorer. And there is the man who is restored. I say the room is divided in Mark 5. It's uh, everybody in the country of the Gerasenes is repulsed, so it seems. And the man who was restored is the one who finds Jesus compelling. And he begs Jesus. Here's another one who begs, verse 18. Some beg him to go. And here, verse 18, as Jesus is getting in the boat to leave, he begs that he might be with him. When Jesus um, handpicked his 12 disciples, you find this back in Mark 3, um, Mark tells us there that he chose them, and I quote, that they might be with him. That's why he called those 12. Exactly the same phrase as is used here. And verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The man wants to be a disciple, wants to follow Jesus in the same way as these 12 apostles. And the Lord says, no. He says in verse 19, there's something else for him to do. Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that is just what he did. You would think, wouldn't you, that there'd be some disappointment there. He, he has this great desire to want to go and to travel with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're not coming with me. I want you to stay here. 
And it shows us, doesn't it, that Jesus is clearly in control of his mission. He doesn't say to this chap, oh, I'm so glad you want to come because we need all the help we can get. You know how small we are in number? No, Jesus knows exactly where he wants this man to be. There's a work for him to do at home. And we don't know any more of him than what we read here. This is what it is to trust Jesus. The man's request was denied, but he did what Jesus wanted him to do. And I think it cautions us, doesn't it, to be very careful about reading too much into what we think are unanswered prayers. Because just looking at the face value of Mark 5, the demons begged Jesus, and he said yes. And the man who trusted Jesus begged him, and Jesus said no. And it's not a sign that Jesus somehow approved of the demons and disapproved of the man who, had, who trusted him and wanted to be with him. That's not what it's about. Those answers weren't signs of Jesus' approval or rejection. But they show us that Jesus is in control of his mission. And he knows where he needs everyone to be. I have often sat with older Christians and some who have significant infirmity, and there's something lovely about that longing that they have to just go home and be with Jesus. What a wonderful desire that is, is a Christian desire to have. And often they don't know why they're still here. I think this helps us in some ways, doesn't it? Because sometimes Jesus says, no, not yet, not yet. Such an encouragement to know that Jesus has his people just where he wants them to be, even if that's not working out how I would like it to be. There's something I need you to do here. And it can be for anything, can't it? That job move, that ministry opportunity, those hopes that we had for family, old age and infirmity. He knows what he's doing. He knows your situation, and he knows where he needs you to be right now. You can trust Jesus. There really is no superior desire that anyone can have than to want to be with Jesus. And Mark writes these words so that we will long to know this Jesus, to believe in him, to trust him. Because when we see that the only one who can restore me from my, dis my disrepair and ruin is the great restorer himself, Jesus Christ, then I long for him more than for anything else. And so we're going to come and we're going to remember that great high point of Jesus' mission where he gave himself on the cross as we come to remember him in the Lord's Supper in a moment. We'll be reminded of the death of Jesus. We'll be reminded that all that we need to be rescued from our sin, our disrepair, our dehumanized state is in him. 
He's accomplished everything we could ever need. And he's done it through giving himself on the cross. So let's, uh, as, as we finish now, let's pray together. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.